Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here. Welcome to our program. And uh, I was just thinking there's a talk that I give that I can't remember the title of right now. <laughs> this is happening more and more lately. These little things slip my mind. But it's a talk where I focus in on, um, at least on one aspect of it, um, uh, defending the faith, but also in a sense of passing it on. And I have a, a section in that talk where I focus in on something that Paul says to Timothy in his last will and testament, uh, which we know as Second Timothy, uh, where he is giving final instructions there to Timothy before he faces his own execution. So he knows he's going to go. That's the passage or the section where he says, I've finished the faith, I've, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith, etc. And uh, the kind of thing that we want to be able to say too. But in that section, chapter 3 of Second uh, Timothy, he, he, he talks about trouble in the world, and then he talks about trouble in the church uh, in chapter 4. Chapter 3, Trouble in the World, all these gross things that are going to happen. It's one of his, like, three or four lists of, you know, the uh, Ruge's list of vice, basically, of all these awful things that people are going to be doing. And it's also in Romans chapter 1 and uh, whatever. And then he talks about the church, though, and he says, the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will, uh, they will collect for themselves teachers according to their own desires and turn away from the truth, okay? And Paul says, hey, you know, you rather, you know, preach the Word. It's all in Second Timothy, the final words of Paul. And, of course, we see trouble in the world. We've seen that for a long time. And in different ways, we've seen trouble in the church. But I've been deeply concerned about things that have been happening of late in the way the church has shifted radically. And I'm speaking of the church at large, those churches that, shall we say, self-identify as Christian churches and the shift that's going on there. And it, recently, there was an event that I think signaled the the shift that's been going on. Uh, and it was at Andy Stanley. Church. Um, I'm looking for the name of his church, North Point Church, which has a massive following, thousands, tens of thousands, 35,000, something like that. And uh, there was a conference this weekend that uh, Alan Schleeman from our team actually attended. And uh, there's been a lot of talk about this conference. Um, and uh, so I thought it'd be great to have Alan on board, since he is our team member who went to the conference and attended the conference, uh, to weigh in on what he saw and give his opinion so that you, my listeners, our listeners, are informed on our perspective on what happened. So, Alan, thanks for spending some time with me today to talk about this. I appreciate you coming on board. Uh, it's my pleasure. Glad to be on with you. Um you know, you did something like this about 14—no, in 2014, about nine years ago with with uh, Sean, where you attended another conference. Just briefly tell us about that and why you did that. Yeah, that was Matthew Vines' conference. It was in 2014. It was held in uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, it was uh, right around the time he had just started the his organization called the Reformation Project. Right. And the conference's goal really is to help— um, is to try to advance what they call LGBT inclusion in the church. Mm -hmm. So they're specifically trying to uh, train Christians to be able to understand the Bible in a way that is gay affirming, they call it. Right. Um, and so to take the, the passages in scripture that we normally would think 
are clearly teaching that homosexual sex is sin and try to offer alternative approaches, alternative interpretations of those passages. Mm -hmm. And then not only do they want to train the people who attended the church to, to adopt this new sort of interpretation of theology, but then to go back to their churches and reform those churches to also be right. gay affirming. Ergo, the Reformation so, yeah. Project. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I was so glad you did that. Sean McDowell went with you. The two of you were there. It was not a covert right. operation. You were out in the open. No. Everybody knew who you were. Totally above board. You went to the seminars. You went to the uh, the plenary sessions, whatever. And um, just just to underscore this, because I want to use this as a backdrop to the this second time you did something like this last weekend— at, uh, at North Point Church with Andy Stanley's event. And um, this particular event in 2014 was explicitly to make a theological case for the moral acceptability of LGBT behavior, relationships, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The Scripture wasn't against those things per se, was the claim, and that was the project, Right. That's right. Yeah, they were specifically trying to advance pro-gay theology and teach our members how to understand it and how to communicate it. And as a, repo as a, as a result of your time there and what you saw, you and I wrote, I think, three, two or three solid grounds, right? Three, uh, it was two, two or three two parts. Part, two parts yeah. solid ground in which we were, we were responding to the various claims. And the advantage of you being there with Sean was that uh, you had all the program material and we, there was no straw man here. We were just um, taking the teaching that they offered at face value and uh, graciously, but clearly offering a refutation of their teaching. Of course, that's those solid grounds are still available for anyone who wants to read them. I, I, but I always forget the title. I think it's like uh, uh, the Reformation the Church Doesn't Need. There we go. Okay, you got it. I have since part learned one that, and part two. There you go. Thank you. I've since learned that complicated titles are not good for pieces. At least they could be complicated, but they have to be memorable. Like the story of reality, how the world began, how it ends, and every important thing that happens in between. Anyway, um, so um, that was really helpful. I think to to me. Um, and to us to understand the the, the uh, content of this particular movement that was accomplishing – meant to accomplish a particular goal, and they've continued for the last uh, nine years or so. And it right. gave us an opportunity to then um, assess what was being said, uh, what was being taught to Christians in the Christian community. And as I recall, mm -hmm. you you – I think you made the observation that when we were there at this event, they had worship, and you'd think you were in anybody else's spirit-filled church, so to speak, because there was right. everybody, yeah, they, yeah. same songs, same vigor, sure. same glow on the face, yet mm -hmm. here is a group that were all affirming something that was clearly not only contrary to Scripture, but uh, the kind of thing that Paul himself said, if this is the lifestyle you're living— you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's 1 Corinthians 6. So with that same thing in mind, you and Sean had planned to do this together. Sean had opted out, as it turned out, and you went by yourself. And uh, I was somewhere else in the country while you were there, and I was praying for you because I knew the importance of the uh, 
of, of you being a witness at this event. By the way, did you find uh, while you were there for and tell us a little bit about the layout and the timing and the uh, the schedule and all that? Did you while you were there? Did you also run it to other people that were there like you? Who were trying to get a, a, the the drift of the event for the sake of of getting a clear picture and then offering whatever critique was appropriate from a biblical perspective. While I was at the conference, I didn't notice anybody who held my view or was there for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, since coming back, uh, publishing an interview that I did with Sean and people becoming aware that I was there, some people have reached out and said, oh, I was there also. Right. Uh, and in fact, somebody said <laughs> they even talked to me, but I had no idea <laughs> who, you know, they, who they were. were. Right. By the um, way, can I just say something about that interview? We're doing our talk here, but I, I just want to encourage people to check out your interview with Sean because there'll be things that you covered on there that we won't be able to cover here for time's sake. But that was a great interview. And I think it's just – is that just Sean's uh, YouTube podcast? Yeah, it's Sean's YouTube channel. Yes. Okay. And they would find that how? Uh, go to YouTube and if you just ser- do the search tool on YouTube and search Sean McDowell, his channel will show right up. And you okay. Can just either click on his channel or subscribe to his oh, channel. Okay. So the, the ordinary it's, way. It's, of finding yeah. things, yeah. yeah. Uh, Amy's just noted, uh, signaled me that she's going to put the link in the uh, the show notes anyway, so that will okay. be available too. So that's great. Okay, so this uh, conference was called what for what purpose? It was called the Unconditional uh, Unconditional Conference, and its purpose was to train parents who have children that identify as LGBTQ. Or it was for ministry leaders who are kind of involved in this space, like maybe youth leaders or people like myself, who teach on the subject. So they're trying to equip us so that we can be more effective at reaching mm-hmm. uh, friends and family who identify as LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, 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 you know, I, I paused a bit when I thought of the title. I mean, the title is unconditional. The title yeah. is suggestive. You know, uh, so, I mean, maybe, maybe not, but I mean, have you, what's your reaction to the title? Well, I mean, in one sense, uh, I, I want to say, well, if they're saying, well, you should have unconditional love towards your child. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously our love is not dependent upon their good or bad behavior. We love them unconditionally. Right. Um, But if the suggestion by the title is, well, and no matter what they do, you will approve and affirm and celebrate and endorse, well, then I, I, have, a, I have a different yeah. uh, assessment well, of it I, that way. Part of the reason, and maybe I'm a little jaundiced about this, but um, I, you know, a, a red flag went up for me just when I saw the title because – and I think this is going to be an important factor, at least in my own assessment, of, since we've already talked about this and you've uh, filled in the staff during our meeting about your experience. And I watched the uh, interview between you and Sean. Um, there, there, I, my, in my sense is there's a deft hand here in equivocation, that is in communicating different they're sending different signals with words that can be read in different ways, and there you just identified it. It could be, oh, well, this is just about unconditional love, or it could be about unconditional approval and acceptance, and people are going to read it in different ways. So that's just just a, a, a little thing that I wanted to note. Okay, now you, you ex- expressed when we, we talked about this as a team here um, some of the things that um, – that you thought were positive about this, and also what was characterized as the kind of dilemma 
that um, a lot of parents are facing, and it's a it's a real dilemma. It's it's parents who love the Lord and want to be faithful to Scripture and and walk in a faithful fashion, but also want to be faithful in a in a meaningful way to their their children or their uh, extended family members or their friends uh, who are who appear, at least at first blush, to be pursuing a lifestyle that is inconsistent with Scripture. At least that's the way their convictions are. And so now they're stuck with this dilemma. And so tell us a little bit about that and uh, how you felt that, you know, maybe this uh, unconditional conference was attempting to address that dilemma. Yeah. So, well, you mentioned some of the good—I mean, you mentioned that I had— recognize some of the good things about the conference. And it's true, like not 100% of everything they said was false or unbiblical. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they they had an appropriate concern about how we as parents or ministry leaders can be loving towards uh, people who identify as LGBTQ, right? Recognize that they are made in God's image, that they are valuable, that they deserve dignity and respect, and that we should lean into these relationships, not lean away or move away or try to end relationships with these people. So, there was a lot of things that they were saying were like, oh, yeah, of course, these are good things. And and I uh, teach those exact things in some cases when I teach on the subject of homosexuality or transgenderism. And one of the things also that they wanted to address was what you were just alluding to, Greg. And that is this dilemma that many people face. So if your son or daughter comes out and says to you, mom, dad, I'm gay or I'm trans, a lot of parents believe they face a dilemma either fidelity to their relationship with their son or daughter or fidelity to their biblical convictions and to what God says. Mm -hmm. And they think they have to make a decision between one or the other. And what this conference did was they characterized two different approaches as to how you could, you know, sort of resolve this. And um, they they called these things two scripts. Uh, So there's a traditionalist script and then there's this um, new script that they Alan, suggested. can I interrupt just for a moment here? Just a yeah. clarity about something you said a moment ago, because I've heard you discuss this a couple different times, <clears throat> pardon me, in a couple different ways. One time I thought I heard that the dilemma that was characterized was fidelity to the relationship or fidelity to theology. Now, you just said it That's here, right. fidelity to the relationship or fidelity to God. To me, that's very different, and I'm wondering, was there a distinction made? Was it fidelity to theology? Is that the way they characterized it, as opposed to God? That's um, different. Yeah, that could just be me, um, you know, just saying something different. But right. yeah, the, the way the way they characterized it was, am I going to kind of go with what is perceived to be God's position? Okay. Or with, with the relationship? You know, of the person and, okay. and God's position, of course, was was mischaracterized or, or, or I should say characterized in such a way that, of course, nobody would want to do it. Mm-hmm. In other words, following the traditionalist script would be things like, OK, your son or daughter tells you that they identify as gay. Well, then what people have done historically is they've uh, cited what they call the clobber passages, mm-hmm. right? These six sort of common passages that are usually um named when someone's trying to describe what the Bible says about homosexual sex. Right. Uh, so the parent will will cite these clobber passages. They'll they'll uh, they won't listen to their kid. They won't be sympathetic 
right? They'll call them reprobate. And I saw and heard all kinds of ridiculous examples of things like, oh, a parent one time, you know, kicked his lesbian daughter down the stairs. Um, or in one case, there was a uh, there was a father who was on his deathbed dying in a hospital and his gay son came to the hospital to see his father right before he died. And the father told the nurse, don't let that guy in because I don't even have a son. Mm, mm -hmm. And so this, these were the really extreme ways that this sort of traditionalist script was characterized. <clears throat> Andy <throat> Stanley, when he spoke, said that the traditionalist script is, has a very limited vocabulary. The only thing that uh, that script knows to say is these four words. Homosexuality is a sin. And so it was just kind of characterized in that. Do you think that way. that was, um, I mean, with all of your experience, you've been involved in these issues for almost 20 years now, and uh, it's a specialty um, of yours, thankfully. And we have someone of your caliber to speak to that and give reflections on this. Do you think that th there's no question in my mind that those kinds of things happen in people's lives? All right. Do you think that's characteristic of the behavior of those who are traditionalists, or is this a little bit of a straw man, would you say? Well, um, I, I do think, like you said, there are instances where I've heard of these kinds of things happening, but they're the minority, I would argue. In fact, like, as you said, I teach on this subject all the time. I teach on it all around the country in all different kinds of denominations. And the vast majority of people that I talk to who have friends and family, and by the way, I when I ask people to show a raise of hands, like how many here um, have a friend or family member that identifies as LGBTQ? 99% of the audience will raise their hand. Wow. And the vast majority of stories that I hear are people who typically will say, I love my son. I love my daughter. I'm trying to reach out to them, but I, you know, I'm not sure how exactly, like what to do, what's, what's right and what's wrong, but I love them. I'm trying to reach out to them. I want to share with them what, what the gospel says. And, and they're not at all typically characterized in these extreme ways. Mm -hmm. And by the way, Greg, I'll also add, you know, I speak in the Middle East mm -hmm. and have been doing so for uh, nearly a decade now. Right. And even there, when I'm working with Arab Christians um, in, in an environment that's dominated by Islam, where you would expect there to be a very anti-LGBT sort of sentiment mm -hmm. that might creep into the church, even there, I do not find it to be the case that these Arab Christians are are talking about their kids or their family members in this really mean-spirited way. They usually mm -hmm. say the same thing. Man, I, I love my daughter. I, she says she's attracted to other women, but uh, I, I love her. I'm trying to talk to her. I'm trying to you know reach out to her and talk about what the Bible says. So, well, this has been. Yeah, my, I would say it's kind of a straw man. Yeah, this is my experience, experience too, though not nearly as extensive as yours, uh, but just anecdotally, and, and in fact, where there is a severing of the relationship, it is almost always coming from the other side, such that if you don't applaud or accept and affirm, uh, you know, then uh, then we're not going. Then you you're a hater. <laughs> And I don't want anything to do with you. And then, of course, and then it's often characterized as the parents kicking the the gay person out of the relationship when that actually isn't what took place. But anyway, so so this is the one side, the traditionalist approach, which looks like a false characterization of the traditionalist approach, as Andy Stanley characterized it. Four words: homosexuality is a sin. If I got that right. 
So, right. and now right. they want to alt- offer uh, an alternative to that, uh, a, a, a better approach, apparently. Yes, yes. Yeah, and they call this, I mean, different sessions called it differently, but it was basically like the new script. And the new script um, has a larger vocabulary than just those four words. Um, they said the new script is very much more Jesus-focused. Um, you don't uh, call your child a reprobate and kick him out of the house. Rather, you love your child. You lean into your relationship with them. You invite them to walk with Jesus, right? You draw them back to Christ. And and that was the, I mean, that in a nutshell is the way this new script was characterized. So I, I'm thinking, though, I, I'm not sure in the way you just articulated it, what I would disagree with, with what was said so far as it goes right now. Yes, right. That what they what they said so far, it's not problematic. Of course, the, the question is, what does it mean to walk with Jesus? Mm-hmm. Like the details of what that looks like is where uh, I think there's a big uh, concern I have with the way that was characterized with what I think the Bible, how the Bible characterizes, well, you know, a relationship with Jesus. Right. And I wrote down the phrase, Jesus focused, which is one you used. And I, I wanted to get a little bit more information about this because I've heard this kind of thing before. And what it may be, it isn't the case here, but oftentimes it's Jesus focused. And then it turns out what they think Jesus did and represented and said and how he comported himself turns out to be almost nothing like the Jesus of the Gospels. You know, in other words, they're they're painting a portrait of Jesus. This is what he's all about, and he turned he turns out to be not the not what he was all about at all. Even though there might be aspects of this, he was loving. Oh, he's so loving. Oh, well, can't, can't argue with that, right? Yeah, right. But uh, but then that's kind of where it stops. And what they do is then they fill in what loving looks like, how Jesus would be loving in this contemporary circumstance. And that's where things, seems to me, go south. But that, I just—Jesus uh, focused, you see. I'm, there is my jaundiced mind, you know, red flags are going up, and I want to—what do you mean by that kind of thing? Let's get clear. But I, that's coming. I guess now when they flesh this out, so this well, new well, new vocabulary, new approach. Yeah, although I'm not even sure they fleshed it out because, uh, I mean, other than to just give examples of how some of the relationships that were described there have ended up now that they've learned not to make the same mistakes. So, for example, Greg and Lynn McDonald who are the leaders and founders of Embracing the Journey. Embracing the Journey is the organization that put the conference on mm-hmm. at Andy Stanley's church. Well, those leaders, Greg and Lynn, they they have a child who is um, um, identifies as a, as a gay man, and he's married to another man. And they talked about how initially when they were told by him that he's gay, they you know made a bunch of mistakes. They didn't know how to address it properly. But now, and this is the way... They characterize the relationship. Everything's great. Like he, you know, he's walking with Jesus. He's married to this man. They showed pictures of their whole family with their son who's married to this other man. And so it was just depicted as this like, you know, wonderful, joyful, cheerful, beautiful thing now. And the thing and that so the, changed was their approach, right? Their behavior. Course, yes. The things that yes. they had to say. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, somebody I think one time asked me, he's like, well, do they talk about sin and repentance? And I said, yeah, but only insofar as it pertained to how the parents mm -hmm. needed to repent of their wrong ways of treating their kids, mm -hmm. being unloving and calling them reprobate. Mm -hmm. So I, I have this question about the clobber passages. It always, I know this is a phrase they use a lot, and there's six of them. You know, um, it, it always bothers me because if you, you this is this is this is wordplay, which I'm, we are both very aware of how language is used to form thinking, right? And it can be used to manipulate thinking. It can be used to make bad things look good and good things look bad. To me, this is an example of the second, because no matter what sin might be in question, there are going to be verses that relate to it. And someone could always say, oh, you're just hitting me with the clobber passages about not being loving, or the clobber passages about not stealing, or the clobber passages about mur not murdering, you know. And But these so-called clobber passages, there's six of them, and these are the ones that are the most explicit biblically in in uh, in in describing homosexuality as not appropriate for Christians and offensive to God and sin and all these different ways it talks about it. Okay, so if if but <laughs> in other words, the one who's doing the clobbering here is God, because <laughs> this is God's word, you know. But this is the way it is disparagingly characterized to uh, disqualify their usage in the life of the of the uh, of the the Christian who is who is pursuing a gay lifestyle or advancing yeah that. of course you yeah but you know that they're they're saying that no it's actually Christians who are using those verses as clubs to clobber people that's that's no, the way no, they I, perceive it. I, yes, I understand that. Right. I get that. But that's, to me, the slate of hand. That is the way, okay, so look at what you're doing to us by using these verses, when these are the verses that we have access to to understand God's purposes regarding these things. So I I just wanted to uh, just yeah. just point that out. So you went to a series, uh, you, you were at the plenary sessions. This was like two days long, is that right? Friday, yeah, Saturday, it was a conference, yeah, and and then Andy Stanley spoke on Sunday to address his his congregation thirty what thirty five thousand, all sites in, in included, right? So uh, be, right. So tell us about some of the uh, the plenary sessions, what they addressed, and and you also went to some of these um, the breakouts, and uh, curious what you learned when you were there. Well, um, so the plenary sessions, oh, and by the way, Greg, I'm assuming we're going to come back to that, um, those two scripts, right? Because yeah. my concern with those two scripts isn't so much that they created a straw man when they, they characterized the traditional script. It's that they didn't suggest or even address the fact that there's a third script or a third way, yeah. which is, I believe, what I've been teaching for 20 years and not that it's original to well, me. Well, look, at, why don't but, you roll that wherever you – if you think it's uh, it's easier for you to roll that in after you talk about the breakouts or you use that as a point to introduce some of the things said in the breakouts, it's fine with me. Well, I just think it, if it, it just seems naturally to address it now because okay. I think uh, to me one of the biggest problems about what they did in the conference was – characterize those two scripts as the only two options right either you don't love them you call them reprobate and you know you beat them over the head with these verses or you just love them and loving them just means telling them to walk with jesus and you know sympathizing or whatever and i'm saying well 
as you said, Greg, some of the things in the new script are legit. Yeah, we should love our kids who identify as LGBTQ. We should lean into our relationships with them. However, what it means to follow Jesus, well, and, and by follow Jesus, I, I'm not even sure what they mean by that. But mm -hmm. if you want to put your trust in Jesus Christ as the only one who uh, is the means by which you can be forgiven for the crimes you've committed against God, right? And enter mm -hmm. into a reconciliation relationship with, with God. All right, great. If that's, what it, if that's what they mean, then you have to also, as a parent or as a ministry leader, talk about the fact that, okay, well, as a child of God who is walking with Jesus, well, there's some things that you might experience that are sinful temptations. And mm -hmm. satisfying some sinful temptations are, are, is also sin, right? Homosexual sex is sin. Other sexual sins are also sinful. And so we need to uh, disciple our children how to understand these concepts of temptation and sin and repentance and the difference between justification and sanctification and how we can lean into the church for prayer and support and mm -hmm. accountability and all these things. Like all that was just left out mm. because their new script, their only other solution other than this horrific way to treat your child is to just tell them to walk with Jesus and it'll all be rosy. You know? mm -hmm. And I'm saying, no, I mean, there's another way. And that is do not abandon your biblical theology, your, your, your biblical sexual ethics, but still love your son or daughter, mm -hmm. right? Or yeah. whoever it is you're ministering to. And both and of those... Like are, that third option wasn't available. Yeah, both of those are part of the biblical ethic. When you when you have a robust understanding of what the Scripture teaches, they, it entails both of those things. It's not an either-or. So uh, um, the... the um, you know, so, okay, um, you were going to talk about... Some, how does this play out, This uh, these different options or this new option, um, play out in the um, breakout sessions and stuff? And also, maybe you could say something about this distinction that they made between theology and pastoral care. And this is where this yeah. group was really different than, I think, the Matthew Vines group or the conference. Yeah, right. Yeah, so the the plenary sessions were, uh, I mean, some were, there was only, let's see, four of them. Um, actually, most of them weren't very specific at all. They were just about um, how to cope, how to handle, how to respond, how to take care of yourself and your own thinking as you as you deal with the fact that your son or daughter has come out and said to you that they're trans or non-binary or gay or whatever. So a lot of the plenary stuff wasn't that interesting oh. other than yeah i mean other than it just simply said really general things and they kept saying hey look we're not talking about the specifics of what the bible teaches you know andy stanley also had a plenary session where he was interviewed um and he kind of he was interviewed on stage and he kind of answered these questions and he kept talking about how look this is not a theology conference this is not a a bible conference we're just here to give sort of practical advice and that was generally the case throughout the plenaries and the breakouts. Um, uh, so and this is actually one of my other main concerns with the mm -hmm. conference is that they claimed to be theologically neutral. They claimed to be having this conversation in what they called a quieter middle space. Mm -hmm. But everything about the conference operated on this hidden premise, somewhat hidden premise, that Homosexual sex is actually morally permissible. Same-sex marriage is actually permissible. Uh, satisfying transgender ideation is permissible. 
And so over and over, they're trying to tell you, we're not talking about theology. We're not talking about the Bible verses. We're not talking about, you know, the, you know, this isn't a theological conference. But everything they said in their practical advice presumed that hidden premise. And consequently, you as an attendee walked away with the inference that, yeah, I guess it's okay if my son one day grows up to be like the McDonald's son, and that is married to another man. Mm-hmm. They had two uh, speakers, Justin Lee and Brian Neitzel. Justin Lee gave a plenary address on um, how to uh, how to talk to somebody you disagree with. Okay, okay, great. You you could have used that. You could have given that talk at any conference, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but Justin Lee is a man who's married to another man. Uh, Brian Neitzel is a man who's married to another man. So you have these prominent speakers who are men married to other men who are speaking. And of course, the, the conclusion that any parent will, would like to come to is, oh, well, I guess that's a model for what my kids can one day experience if mm. they choose to get married, you know. So this was frustrating to to see this sort of, hey, we're not trying to address the theology. We're not trying to just the biblical sexual ethics. We're trying to be neutral. And yet, Every book, every rec- uh, website that was recommended, every resource, every speaker, every facilitator, every volunteer I talked to, all operated on this idea: homosexuality, transgenderism. These are things that are kind of okay, and we can mm-hmm. satisfy them in however ways we want. No suggestion that there was anything morally questionable about it. I, I mean. Uh, unless there, unless it was, so I didn't t- attend every breakout. Yeah. Obviously, I can only attend whatever the four that I had time for. But um, in those, in all the plenaries and all the breakouts and and everything else, the answer was no. The answer I didn't hit, hear anybody saying it was anything problematic. And in fact, every book they sold was pro-gay in its teaching. Hmm. Uh, David Gushy, uh, who at Matthew Vines' conference in 2014, is when he announced his change of his of his position. From saying that homosexual sex is sin to saying, no, it's permissible. Um, He taught on wrestling with theology. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, oh, here we're going to finally hear the biblical passages and kind of the arguments for a gay affirming view. But he didn't talk about it at all. Mm -hmm. And he even said, we're not going to talk about theology. This is not a theology conference. (laughs) His book that they're selling outside of his room, of the room that we're listening to, advances pro-gay theology quite vigorously. Right. I, I was chuckling because he's doing a plenary saying, wrestling with theology, and then he doesn't do anything theological. I, I don't know what else he talked well, about, but... Well, the, the, the wrestling with theology is just the general notion that you can have an interpretation about what the Bible says, and it could be mistaken. And so mm-hmm. he gave examples. He said, uh, look, yeah. Christians for years have been advancing anti-Semitic theology and basing it on the Bible, but we've seen how that's been hurtful towards uh, Jews. And so because of that hurt, we have looked at the scriptures in a fresh way and changed our Mm -hmm. interpretation. Mm -hmm. The same thing with slavery. We used Bible passages to advance slavery and we see how hurtful that was, but now we have a fresh look at the same passages. So he he stopped there, but didn't then say what obviously I think is implied, which is, and so when it comes to homosexuality, 
We've also adopted this interpretation. It's hurtful. Let's look at it in a fresh way. So it, this is very interesting, uh, the language you're using, and, and uh, I'm not. I, I'm sure that it's uh, it characterizes his approach, Gushy's approach, who, as I understand it, came out as gay-affirming not long as a theologian, because he's part of their theological voice in that movement. Yes. He came out as gay-affirming soon after he found out that his own son was gay. Is that right? I, uh, Something I think it like, might be a sister or maybe, someone, maybe sister. someone close to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, someone in his family is. Yeah. So, uh, but it's interesting the way you characterize it. So we see slavery and and uh, being justified by the Bible and uh, anti-Semitism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we've come up with a fresh way of looking at it. It seems to me what we need is not a fresh way, but an accurate way. Maybe people were misreading the intention of the text and coming to wrong conclusions for other cultural reasons, anti-Semitic culture, um, a pro-slavery culture, you know. And when I look at – even in Street Smarts when I'm dealing with the issue of slavery, um, I'm not saying, OK, we've got to look at this in a fresh way. That's how we deal with what – we're saying I'm trying to help them to see the – slavery or so-called slavery in that context at that time and that we have misunderstood some things about what the text meant, all right? And that's how we've repaired the breach because we got back to the original characterization of what was going on. Um, and this this sounds like his approach is the things that we that were hurtful for some people in the past, we have to reinterpret so we don't hurt people I, maybe it hurt isn't even the right way to put it. We don't we don't uh, have theology that feels hurtful to people in the present, and this feels hurtful to gays, and so we should adopt a fresh view, which then doesn't feel hurtful to gays and lesbians, etc. Which, in my mind, sounds like it's not an attempt to go back and get the accurate meaning out of the text, but rather to relativize the text in a way that makes it more um, uh, the, the teaching that we have now drawn from it relativistically more appealing to the culture. I mean, I mentioned earlier about Second Timothy, the tickling of the ears. They do not endure sound doctrine. And I'm just trying to make these distinctions here, Alan, because, again, I'm, I'm so sensitive to the ways the language is being used to make things look better than they are. You know, we had a fresh way of doing it. Look at now we're not hurting people, you know, so because now they feel good about doing bad would be a, a simple way that I would put it. And I say doing bad because God says the behaviors are bad. And he says so very clearly. Okay, the clobber verses, quote unquote, are, are verses that are used precisely because they are so completely unambiguous when understood in their context, and especially their historical context. So, anyway, I, I'm just just uh, I'm just underscoring that way of you know just watch out for all this. This is something that has listened to you and and your conversation with Sean and 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 others that uh, have reflected on this. Some pieces I've read. Um, I I see this general trend. And the trend seems to be, to me, is to uh, – I'm trying to think of the most ter charitable way to put this, but it's kind of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge kind of thing. You know, the insiders know what we're really doing here, okay? But we're trying to say it all in a way that's so equivocal that we have uh, – what is that? Plausible deniability. 
right? Yeah. So you, you 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 used an example. I, mean, I can't remember the specifics, but it was something about how in the sermon on Sunday, Andy Stanley said something about we stand behind the biblical approach or something to that effect, but then didn't make clear exactly what the I mean, do you remember that comment that you made? Um, can you yeah, clarify that? Yeah, another, uh, another biblical scholar was, was commenting that um, uh, when Andy Stanley clarified what his church's position is on sex and marriage, because, mm-hmm. of course, after the conference, there's a bunch of backlash. Everybody's writing articles about it. He's like, look, we, we believe uh, that marriage is exactly what the biblical authors believe the marriage was, right? The biblical authors assumed that marriage is between a man and a woman. And, and somehow in the way he said that, like the biblical authors assume that marriage is between a man and a woman, or again, I, I know he said it twice because there's two different services, but the but the, the this other scholar who was looking at his words recognized that Stanley was simply describing how the biblical authors perceived marriage, mm. not necessarily prescribing that marriage is only between a man and a woman in all time and all mm-hmm. cultures. And so in that sense, he kind of, made his audience feel good about the fact that he said biblical marriage is between a man and a woman, but in a way that still left the door open for him potentially embracing same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. And the same thing, by the way, with regards to um, homosexual sex uh, and and the verses like 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, and Romans 1, he said, look, we we believe in all those verses. We think they're true verses. And he says... um, we believe that the that the that the sin that's mentioned in those verses is still sin today. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, that's great. Except, what is the sin that you think is referenced in those verses? Right. Is it homosexual sex, or is it, as pro-gay theology people would say, only abusive, coercive homosexual sex, right. not loving consensual? So, in other words, he he kind of left it open for maybe adopting a gay-affirming view in the future. Yeah, yeah. Now, again, it could be that he's just not speaking carefully. He's not a philosopher, so maybe he's just speaking, you know, kind of extemporaneously. But he was sitting down at his at a table, at a chair, on a chair, and he had a computer or something with notes. So he was being really careful about what he said. So it just makes you think, man, is he, you know, has he changed his mind about this question? Seems like it could be the case, but I, I don't know. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, discover his intent or his, you know, inner right. thoughts. I have no idea. But but based on what he presented and said, we're just making an assessment about that. Yeah. So um, you you ran into Matthew Vines there and had a conversation with Matthew after you know nine years since you yeah, were at his yes. conference. I'm curious about how that went and what transpired. Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, I ran into a number of. Um, uh, pro-gay theology leaders and, and players. Actually, some recognized uh, you, as yes, I they, recall. Yeah. <laughs> they did recognize me, uh, yeah. That's good. Yeah, so... Um, I was and, happy you know, to some, hear pro- that. Some, some progressive Christians and stuff. And actually, our conversations were, were quite cordial and I'm and sure fun they were, and, right. Yeah, so, I mean... Um, and they, you know, they were, they were like asking like, Hey, how did you feel at this conference? Did you feel, you know, like you were treated well? And so they were actually very concerned that I was treated well, oh. which, which made me think like, they see me as the outsider in this situation, right? And it was interesting that um, I was talking to one of them, and I said, "Hey, you go is is this kind of conference the kind of conference that you would um, that you're happy to see happening here?" And they were like, "Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah, we're we're really thrilled with the conference." Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, um, one of the um, 
one of the progressive i think he's a progressive christian i'm not sure and mm-hmm. if he's if he's not and i don't mean to say that he is but he's definitely a, a a person who professes to be a christian and advances a pro-gay theology view um after leaving the conference he posted on twitter is this zach, zach lambert yes yeah zach i have lambert, his yes. uh, i have his post right here in front of me go ahead Oh, okay, yeah. So he he posted uh, on Twitter. He said regarding the the conference. He said, "quote Every speaker, video, book, and breakout I saw fully affirmed LGBTQ plus folks!" Exclamation point. I saw pastors advocating for inclusion, parents welcoming their children's same sex partners into the family, trans folks sharing their transition stories, and queer people leading at literally every level. Mm. End quote. Mm-hmm. I mean, so from their perspective, from the people who are advancing pro-gay theology in the church, they saw this conference as a win, mm-hmm. right? Because it's it's advancing their goals in in a very powerful and direct way. Even Matthew, and that's Bynes, why I was saying, yeah, go ahead. I was uh, even Matthew Mines, as I recall in our conversation before, made the same comment regarding this conference, right? When you talk to him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He and uh, others who were there were were. I mean, like I said, they. They were there because I presumably believe it's there. You know, this is the kind of thing they want to see. Yeah. And they were worried that I was being mistreated or concerned if I was being mistreated because they see me as the outsider, right? Because mm-hmm. I hold a view that says, no, the Bible says that sex is and marriage is only between one man, one woman with one flesh. So, one so there, there is a, a, an interesting subtext here, and this is, this is culture-wide. But notice that what they did is um, – you know, even if it was somewhat the, um, somewhat subtle, though I guess not so subtle, they were presenting a, a view, not just a pastoral view, which you agree with to some degree, but a theological view embedded in that pastoral view that you disagree with. Okay, and uh, my presumption is in this environment, uh, because of the way this was all set up, is that people were not demonizing others who didn't hold their view. Uh, this was supposed to be a kind of a warm, soft, pastoral kind of environment and how to help people. So it isn't like the conservatives, uh, theological conservatives, were going to get beat up from the platform or whatever. Uh, what was happening was an alternate point of view from the conservative view, is effectively being advanced, right? And so then they see you there, and they know the view you represent, and they're deeply concerned about your feelings. Well, nobody said anything to hurt your feelings. They just disagreed with you. And what I'm taking from that is there's just this sense that if someone disagrees with someone else, that the, the, the feelings about Being—it's almost like you feel dissed if somebody disagrees with you, you know? And so you might be—we disagreed, so are you feeling okay? Well, of course, that's not the issue. The issue is the point of view that's being advanced, not the feelings. But that's the way in our culture everything's experienced. That's where this whole snowflake thing comes from. How would you like it if somebody said you were wrong? You know, I had a young lady tell me once. And uh, I said, it doesn't bother me at all. I'm a grown-up, you know. <laughs> it's okay. I, but you could disagree with me. I'm not going to be offended, but so many are offended. And they were sensitive to you taking offense, it seems to me, unless I'm misreading it here. They were sensitive to you taking offense and being disagreed with, essentially, throughout the conference, given your point of view. 
Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and to kind of go back to a point that you alluded to uh, maybe about five minutes ago, the one of the main problems that I saw was that they were um, – the conference was presuming that you can sort of disconnect a theology from the way you pastor and minister. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you kind of alluded to it in your, in your, in your question mm-hmm. uh, in, in one of your statements. And, um, and, I, and I realized that was the case in one situation where I was attending a, a, one of the sessions. Uh, the, the speaker was teaching about practical advice, like how to minister to someone who identifies, for example, as gay. Mm-hmm. And after the, after the session was over, I asked him, I said, how would your advice be different if you held the view that homosexual sex was sin? And he said, oh, I, my advice would not be different at all. Mm. Nothing would change about my pastoring ministerial advice mm. if I had a different view that, that homosexual sex was sin. Mm-hmm. And I think to myself, how is that possible? Mm-hmm. Right? How is it possible that your theology would not affect the practical ways in which you minister and disciple your children mm-hmm. or minister to and disciple students in your youth group who identify as LGBTQ? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, because... If, if your son wants to date another man, well, don't you think how you pastor and how you disciple them will be different now if your theology says homosexual sex is not permitted? Mm-hmm. Or if your daughter wants to marry a woman? Or if your son wants to uh, surgically transition? I mean, so it, it's, it was baffling to me that they thought it's that theology somehow doesn't affect that. And of course, since your yeah. theology is dependent upon the verses... Uh, of the Bible and what the Bible, biblical passages teach, just seems like this is not this what, isn't this isn't going to work. What what does it even mean to pastor? You know, a, a pastor is a shepherd. A shepherd guides, leads, directs, feeds, whatever. What does he guide, lead, direct, feed with, if not substantive theological content? But it, this is this is a. This is another one of those uh, slate-of-hand moves, it seems to me, like—and maybe you can explain this. Uh, we don't—we're not drawing any theological lines. Uh, we, Jesus didn't draw theological lines. He drew inclusive circles. Lines, not circles. That was a theme from the, that weekend, too, last weekend. Yeah, that was from Andy's uh, sermon. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't—I'm trying to think if he said that. Maybe he said that at the conference, but I know he said it in the sermon. Yeah. So it's like we're not about excluding people. We're about including. So this is just—this is just another one of those linguistic devices, it seems to me, to make their view look more appealing than an alternate view. We're not about excluding. We're about— because we're like Jesus. We're including. Well, wait, I thought—didn't Jesus say, uh, go and sin no more? Well, wasn't that kind of a line in the sand kind of thing? And I mean, I just—it's a memorable example, but there are dozens and dozens of times in the text where Jesus made very clear moral statements. And to sum it up, he'd say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm, I'm curious— for somebody to clarify, what are these circles that Jesus was always drawing? I know that Jesus did not exclude the kind of people that were culturally excluded at that time. Even even lepers were not excluded. Jesus met their need. He touched them. He cared for them. He healed them. Okay, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the prostitute or the illicit, uh, the, the the woman at the well, you know, who 
presumably was a, a woman of ill repute because she's out in the middle of the day there gathering her water when it's hot and nobody else is there because nobody wants to be around her. And uh, yet he embraces her. But uh, but he, it isn't like he's going out of his way to find a bunch of sinners and include those sinners in his circle of acceptance. Rather, he is going out of his way to communicate a message of salvation to everyone, even those who had been excluded by the uh, the cultural elite there, the religious elite. So even this circles uh, versus the line being drawn— characterization is is so misleading to me it, it but it just makes their side look look really good what what about this concept of uh, <clears throat> I'm looking for the phrase now in my notes of uh unattainable uh ideal or unattainable what was that um Amy made mention of it in our conversation but I read it somewhere it, that the idea that have if you are if you have same sex attraction then uh, to expect that you don't indulge in same-sex attraction with relationships, especially trying to a marital relationship, that's kind of an unattainable or unsustainable. That was oh oh yes, yes. unsustainable something or other. Yeah, it was it was that was part of I think Andy's sermon. I'm trying to remember if he also said in the conference, but he did well, say good. In it's the sermon, un- which... uh, yeah unsustainable ideal or yeah go ahead. Yeah, he, he says something like, um, you know, a, a boy grows up in the church. He experiences the same-sex attraction. He prays and asks God to take away those attractions. But th- he says, God does not answer. And so for some of those kids, yeah, they might uh, live a celibate life. But for others, that's just unsustainable. And so they might then turn to same-sex marriage. Or It was something like that. I mean, I'm, I'm not quoting him directly right now, but... Uh, yeah, that was that was the context in which he he made that statement. But he, we talked about this as a team too, and you gave a great response to that. And maybe you can say something about it. But what I said about your response was that there's nothing at all profound in your response, Alan. In other words, this is no, no duh to anybody yeah. who's read the Bible and a pastor of thirty five thousand people of his of his uh, pedigree, so to speak, ought to know better than to offer that as a bromide for people who are who are in deep sin yeah uh well yeah my yeah my comment was simply that um sure he, they, they may have same-sex attraction and that might continue for their entire life but that's no different than virtually any other believer who experiences i mean because we all experience desires and some of those desires that we experience if they if we satisfy them would be sin and we could pray that God take away those desires and they, and he may never do that. We might live all the way until we die. And, and only then are we free from desires. That's right. But does that mean that, that God didn't, uh, if God didn't take away those desires, does that mean that therefore either God created those desires in us or that it's morally permissible to satisfy Mm -hmm. them? Mm -hmm. And I think the answer is no, neither. It just, it just is that that's a fallen world we live in and we're broken individuals and uh, yeah, we have lots of desires that, mm-hmm. um, if we satisfied, would be sin. Well, that's so the, there's that's, nothing there's nothing unique about the person who experiences same sex attraction or whatever. Like, we all have some desires that yeah. 
would be sin if satisfied. So we're almost what out do we got to do? we got to mortify them, you know? Exactly. And that's what I was saying. That's the no-duh kind of response that even Andy Stanley doesn't get. He, there's this shallow kind of response. Well, it's an unsustainable uh, ideal. And, uh, and well, then what do we say to anybody who struggles with sin? Uh, real quickly here. Oh, gosh, two minutes. Um, I read something by Andrew Walker. And uh, and he was he he was basically taking giving the same observations you did. But underneath his tweet, there was somebody who responded and said, "This is so fabulous! What Andy Stanley did, that place was so filled with the Spirit. Everything was wonderful. He was so much like Jesus." Then the observation I had was, you have two different people that are giving two different assessments. Okay, and uh, one is giving an objective assessment based on theology. <laughs> And the other mm-hmm. one's giving a subjective assessment based on how he feels. And to me, this is part of the danger of this, that that uh, do we go with the objective instructions of the Word of God to govern our life and our pastoral care, or do we kind of just flow with our feelings and then call that the Holy Spirit? And in the, you know, 45 seconds, Alan, you made an assessment uh, about Andy Stanley, and I'd like you to offer that. It's either this or that, you know, and uh, can you offer that with us or share that with us right now? Yeah, I was just, yeah, my assessment was simply that either Andy Stanley is, is either naive or he's crafty. And either way, he's dangerous. And I say he's naive because I think if 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 he is naive and he think it's because he thinks that you can kind of do this conference and not expect it to change the theology and the culture of the church, mm-hmm. or he's crafty and his his intent is to actually change the his the theology of the church and to change you know you know and have that impact other churches as well. Well, he because would... my go ahead. I was gonna say just my my last comment was just simply that because the way I see what happened was if I wanted to quietly mainstream uh, pro-gay theology or pro-trans theology into the evangelical church, I would create this conference. Yeah, well, there you have it. that's exactly what I think it's going to do. Alan, thank you for all your feedback. That's my concern. I want to end on that note. Danger, 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 danger. Clever danger, but still danger. Thank you, Alan. Greg Kokel here and Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye.